The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Thus far in our Advent series, uh, we've explored three angelic announcements. They've been announcements of, that have followed the Advent candles, announcements of hope, love, and joy. This morning we turn our attention to a fourth and final angelic announcement, one of, of peace. Uh, there are some words that are just good southern words. Like, you know, y'all, ain't, fixin' to, which is one word. Uh, but one of my favorite southern words is the word yonder. Like, it's just like next level country. Like, it's like, hey, y'all, ain't we fixing to go over yonder? Like, like it doesn't get more unrefined than, than yonder. However, what is really interesting is that even a word like yonder can all of a sudden be transformed and become gloriously poetic when it's put in the right context and surrounded by beautiful language. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I mean, the advent of Christ His birth transforms everything, even a word like yonder. For the birth of of Christ, it is like the dawning of a new day on this darkened world. That's what that song says. That's what that's about. Yonder, with the birth of Christ, breaks a new and glorious morn. There is a glorious new morning being breaking into this dark world, a world that's covered in sin and error, a world that pines, that longs for peace. And the sunrise of a day of peace is finally breaking in. Do you want to see it? That songwriter says, look yonder to the birth of Christ. That's what I want to invite us to do this morning. I want to invite us to look yonder to the birth of Christ in order to see the peace it is that he brings. I want to invite us to do that because I believe that's what Luke is inviting us to do. Just look really quickly at the end of chapter 1. I know you turned to chapter 2, but right above it, at the end of Luke chapter 1, in verse 78, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is prophesying, and he's describing the coming of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 78. He says, The sunrise shall visit us from on high. A new dawn's going to break. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah describes the coming of the Messiah like this. Yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Christ is coming like a sunrise from on high. And it is a sunrise of peace. And it will break into the darkness of this peaceless world. This This is what Luke is inviting us to see. It's what he's inviting Theophilus to see. Don't forget that Luke writes this gospel to a new believer by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus' faith is rather shaky right now because he's experiencing persecution within the Roman Empire. 
And Luke writes to give him certainty and reassurance. I mean, Theophilus has got to be looking around at persecution on the rise and thinking to himself, I thought Jesus came to bring peace. But peace is not what I am experiencing. And if we're honest, peace is not what we're experiencing either, at least not very much. Like, like be honest with yourself, when you look around our world, is, is peace the first descriptor that comes to your mind? Or not just when you look around our world, but when you look into your own personal world, with whatever it is that you struggle with, we all have struggles, whether it's in your marriage or whether you struggle with your singleness or whether you struggle with parenting and your children got rebellious kids that are away from the Lord. Whatever it is, name it, financial trouble, whatever. Is peace the first descriptor that comes to mind when you look at your, your world? The question becomes, does the advent of Christ really announce peace into anyone's life? Does does Advent really announce peace to the world? It does. Shades it. It does. And Luke is inviting Theophilus. He's inviting us to see it. We need to see how yonder through the Advent of Christ breaks a new and glorious morn of peace. Peace to you. Peace to me. Peace to the the world that's what we're aiming to see everybody got the plan let's look yonder into luke chapter 2 to see it all right verses 1 through 3 in those days a decree went out from caesar augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of syria and all went to be registered each to his own town so what i think luke is going to do all throughout this passage i think he's going to help us see how How a new and glorious morn of peace is breaking into the world through the advent of Christ. I think he's going to help us see that by showing us four things. And right here, he's showing us the first one. Number one, all Caesars claim to bring peace. All Caesars claim to bring peace. Where am I getting that from? Well, I just read to you from the end of Luke chapter 1 in verse 78, just a moment ago, right? We read Luke 1, verse 78, and we read about how the Messiah's coming is like a sunrise from on high, bringing peace. So that's what's ringing in our ears. Here comes the Messiah. He's bringing peace. And the very next thing Luke wants us to hear is, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Christ is coming, bringing peace. Caesar rules and reigns. Like, I mean, do you feel the, the tension right there? Where is the Christ that was just prophesied to us in verse 78? Where's the peace that he's supposed to be bringing? Where's the inbreaking of of light of him like the rising of of the sun? Because all I see right here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 is darkness. Caesar rules, not Christ. The dawn of these days, it only brings decrees from Caesar, which he issues in order to maintain his version of peace, the Pax Romana, the, the, the peace of Rome, which basically means peace that's enforced through repression against rebellion. Luke is forcing us to feel the tension. The tension between what we say and what we see. The tension between what we confess to believe 
and what confronts us in the world. He's forcing us to feel that tension. I say Christ, I say Christ is coming, I see Caesar. Caesar's here. I say light, light's coming, I see dark. Dark is here. I say peace, I see a false version of Rome's peace. This shades, this is one of the reasons I love and believe the Bible. It is honest about the tension honest about the tension between what we say we believe and what we see before our eyes. Honest about the tension between what we confess through the word and what confronts us in the world. Luke is saying, Theophilus, shades, you confess Christ, but doesn't it look like Rome still controls the world? You ever feel that tension? That's not new to you. That tension is here. In Luke chapter 2, Caesar reigns. You can see it through his consistent policy of taking censuses. And yes, I looked it up. That is the correct way to say that in the plural. Censuses. He would take censuses throughout his empire all the time. It was was like a, a constant reminder to the people of not only whom they owe taxes to, but whom they owe their allegiance to. It's a constant reminder of who owns them they owe everything to caesar and caesar sees himself as their sovereign savior like that's the language used to describe caesar and specifically caesar augustus all the time throughout history just look up sometime the way that the the roman provincial council talked about caesar augustus when they were making a proposal to change the 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 new year to start on his birth date When they make that proposal, they call him things like the savior of the world who's caused war to cease and brought peace. They they talk about the day of his birth, and I quote, as the birthday of the God that marked for the whole world the beginning of good tidings, good news, gospel. Caesar sees himself and proclaims himself as the sovereign savior who brings peace to the world. Shades, this is still the claim of every Caesar ever. And by every Caesar ever, I'm not just talking about politicians and world rulers. I'm talking about anything person or thing, anything that would claim your allegiance by promising you the peace your heart desires. I'm talking about rulers. I'm talking about world philosophies and worldviews and teachers and products and promotions and degrees and careers and relationships. All of these Caesars, all these things that would try to lay claim on your life by promising you peace, they, they, they all claim to have sovereign power to save you by giving you the peace that you seek. They they claim to bring good tidings of great joy because they have the gospel that you need to believe. All Caesars claim to bring peace. What Caesar do we believe? Like as you look around the world, across the landscape that's littered with Caesars, as you look around the world, as you you watch the the news, as, as you scroll through social media, like what... What Caesar lays claim to the allegiance of your heart? Is it the Caesar of of politics? 
Like if my party gets power, then they'll bring peace. So no matter what, I'll sacrifice any principles to kneel at the throne of political power. Or maybe it's not Caesar of politics, maybe it's the Caesar of relationships. Like scrolling through social media. All you see, if you're, if you're single, you just see married people. It's like those are the only people on Instagram. You just see married people with all their perfect kids. and they, Every last one of them looks like the bucket list family. It's just ridiculous. And your lonely single heart kneels before the Caesar of family. That's the gospel that will bring me peace. Or maybe it's the opposite. As you scroll through that social media, all you see is the single people with their active social lives, unbound by spouses and kids, and their ability to just travel, and life looks like adventure. Every other week they're in Japan or Ireland or India or whatever's going on. And you kneel before the Caesar of, of, of self, wanting out of your marriage and family because that's the gospel that's going to bring and like on and on and on, the list could, could go. What, what does your heart kneel before and call it Caesar and Lord because you believe that thing, that person, that whatever is the sovereign savior, savior that will bring peace to your life. All Caesars claim to bring peace. But there is only one sovereign who can truly give peace. This is the second thing Luke shows us in order to help us see how how the new and glorious morn of peace is going to break into our world he's shown us all caesar's claim to bring peace but secondly only the sovereign can give peace only the sovereign can give peace peace is a promise that can only be declared by somebody who's sovereign if you truly want to give firm eternal everlasting peace you must be sovereign over all things only the sovereign can claim to give peace. Caesar may look sovereign to us on the surface of things in Luke chapter 2. I mean, he orders a, a census, which for the Jewish people and their method of record keeping, that meant that everybody's going to have to travel back to their ancestral home. And that's what we see happen. Caesar orders a census. Everybody gets up, moves, and obeys. Caesar looks sovereign. Therefore, our hearts are tempted to kneel before him as the sovereign Savior who brings peace. But... Luke wants Theophilus and us to see past the surface level of things. Past, he wants us to see past Caesar to who the true sovereign is in this situation. He shows it to us. Read with me verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, and he went to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. This census, which displays Caesar's supposed sovereignty, it gets Joseph to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that's a town which the prophet Micah said 700 years earlier. He said, that will be the birthplace of the Messiah. Joseph goes there because he's of the house and lineage of David. Over a thousand years ago, in 2 Samuel 7, God himself had told David, I'm going to bring a Messiah through your line. And Joseph travels with somebody else, Mary. 
is betrothed. And though she is a virgin betrothed to him, she's already with child. Because over 700 years ago, God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Caesar's census, which is meant to display his sovereignty, is perfectly fulfilling the prophecies of God concerning the sending of the Messiah. You tell me, who's really sovereign in this situation? Who's the one in control? Who's the one initiating the movement that's taking place? The one who just issued a decree or the one who over a thousand years ago said this piece, that piece, that piece? Here they go. Like Luke is is laboring for us to look beyond the surface of Caesar's action to see the sovereignty of God. He wants us to know it may look like Caesar is in control and reigning, but what you're actually seeing is Proverbs 21.1 playing out before you. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God is the only sovereign one here. And only the sovereign can give you peace. Caesar may promise it, but he doesn't have the power to give it. No Caesar does. This is what Luke wants Theophilus and us to see. Theophilus, I know what it looks like on the surface level of your your life. It looks like Caesar for him. Caesar literally still reigns. But Theophilus, see past the surface. Look at your world through the lens of the birth of Christ. There is only one sovereign no matter what it looks like. And only he has the power to give you peace. This is what Luke wants us to see. I don't care what things look like, shades, on the surface of our our world, see our world through the lens, not of social media, not of the news, not of worldview, not of whatever. See the world through the lens of Luke chapter 2. There is a God who is sovereign over the centuries, and he is bringing about his perfect plan of peace. He's the only one with the power to give peace. Do you, do you see it? I know we say it, we confess it, but do you see it even when you are confronted by the way things seem in this world? Again, if we're honest, it can, be, it can be so hard to see that our God is the only sovereign who gives peace. And I think, I think that it's particularly hard to see because of the way He gives it. He doesn't give it like anything that we would expect. He gives this peace through a very different kind of Savior. We all look to Saviors. The world is looking to save, for a Savior. But God gives us this peace through a very different looking kind of Savior. This is the third thing that Luke shows us to help us see how the new and glorious morn of hope is breaking into our lives. Third thing he shows us is only the Savior brings peace. All Caesars claim to give peace. Only the Sovereign can give it. And only the Savior brings it. Caesar claimed to be the Sovereign Savior. We've seen no matter what it looks like, he's not Sovereign. God is. And now Luke shows us that no matter what it looks like, he's not the Savior either. There's only one Savior, and he looks very different than Caesar. Read about him with me in verses 6 and 7. And while they, that's Mary and Joseph, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them 
in the end. Too often, uh, we read these verses, which are very brief, very terse. We like to fill them out with all sorts of details that are not here. We, we, too often, when we read these verses, we get wrapped up in talking about what's not here. We, we tend to focus on Joseph and Mary having this frantic search for an inn, a place to stay before she has this baby, and there's no empty room, and they're told no and no by every innkeeper till they find one nice innkeeper who's like got this stable out back, and he offers it to them. And in reality, the text says none of that. It's not here. And you may be like, but Jonathan, it says in. The word that we translate in right here is not Luke's typical word for an inn, a hotel-like structure. The word that he uses here is actually his normal word for a guest room. Bethlehem was this little rinky-dink town. It is highly unlikely that they had enough travelers for there to ever be a commercial inn there. I got no archaeological evidence that there ever was one, but people did the normal thing they did in ancient Near Eastern uh, culture. When they built their homes, usually a singular lower room, they also built a small upstairs room that served as a guest room. That's the word that's being used right here. There's no room in any of the guest rooms. Even all of those are filled up. So it is possible that Mary and Joseph end up in a stable-like structure, which in Bethlehem would have more likely been a cave. That's where they typically kept things if they kept them anywhere else. However, it is actually even more likely that they ended up on the floor in the downstairs family room of a house. I told you the average person had a guest room upstairs. They would have, because of hospitality culture in the ancient areas, they would have naturally invited guests in even when they didn't have room up there to sleep within the family room. An interesting thing about these family room structures, they were divided in half. One half of the floor was a little bit raised, about six inches, and that was the family's living space. The other half that was lower, that was reserved to bring in the family's animals at night. There would have been a manger there. Perhaps this was the birthplace of of Jesus. But here's the deal. While it can be fun to play around with all of these theories, again, none of this is in the text. Because this is not the point. And we usually try to make this the point. It's not the point. What is here? What is the point? The point is a baby born to a virgin laid in a manger. In other words, the point is a very different kind of Savior with a very different kind of birth with a very different kind of throne. I mean, just like the word yonder, even something as unrefined as a manger can become a glorious throne when set in the context of holding the King of Kings. This is what Luke emphasizes. Three times throughout this text, we are going to be told the Savior was laid in a manger. He was laid in a manger. You're going to find him in a manger. Luke's point is not where the manger is, in a cave or in a house. His point is where the Savior is, in a manger. This, this is the identifying mark that he's going to give, that, well, that the angels are going to give to the shepherds in just a moment. This is how they're going to know when they found the Savior. They're going to find him lying in a manger. In other words, this was not normal. 
Like the shepherds could search every cave in Bethlehem, every house in Bethlehem, and there's only one baby they're going to find lying in a manger. That's the Savior, and he is lying in a manger to show you that he is the exact opposite of the prideful Caesar on his throne, taking censuses so that he might get from you. This Savior is the humble Christ lying in a manger so that he might give himself to you. He, he doesn't enforce a peace. He brings a peace. He is our peace given to us by the sovereign God. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. He is our peace given to us by the sovereign God. And this is so hard for us to see. Because we live in a world where Caesars dominate the landscape with their powerful claims to bring peace. In such a world, who looks to a seemingly powerless baby in abject poverty? Like what peace could he possibly bring? Luke is glad we asked because that's precisely what we're about to hear announced. The kind of peace that this Savior brings. Hear it in verses 8 to 14. Luke writes, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. An angel shows up, and like we've seen every time, they freak out, as one does. It's okay, the angel keeps going. And the angel said to them, Fear not, why? For behold, I bring you good tidings, good news. The word is literally gospel. Fear not, for I bring you a gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What kind of peace will this baby bring? All the peace that Caesar promised but could never deliver. Caesar, whose birth was supposedly good tidings, good news, gospel for the world. The angel says, let me tell you about a true sovereign Savior whose birth is the only gospel that glorifies God in the highest and brings peace among mankind. What kind of peace? He starts by saying global peace. The angel says, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. Caesar thinks that he's got peace that he's enforcing on all the world. I've got peace that I'm bringing to all the world. It's for all the people. I've got global good news. And it's global good news because the Savior who's born is bringing peace. Peace among men. That's a packed word in Hebrew culture. The the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which is obviously not used right here because the New Testament was written in Greek, but it's still packed with everything that would be received from their Jewish background. The word shalom, it's bigger than just kind of this idea of you know, peace between you and me or peace like we say to each other. We're like, hey, peace, what's up, whatever. It's, this is a theologically loaded word because it encapsulates the restoration of all things. When when Jews talked about a Savior bringing peace, bringing shalom, they, they meant a return to Eden kind of peace. Where there's peace with God, peace with one another, 
peace with creation. Creation itself is at peace. Everything is perfectly just, perfectly right, perfectly perfect. Like such, such peace is good news for the globe. This is the peace that Caesar claimed to bring but could not ever truly provide. Jesus brings global peace. But it's not just global, it's also personal. He brings personal peace. It's something that you personally experience. You see that again in the angel's words that he says to the shepherds. He says, I bring you. Yeah, it's for all people. But I bring you a gospel of great joy. Like the personal peace that each of us longs for, that we cannot find in anything this world has to offer. That joy and satisfaction in life that you desperately crave. The angel says that peace is yours in this baby. Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This baby is the Lord. He's God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel. God with us. And He's here as a Savior. He's here to save. Matthew chapter 2 tells us that he's named Jesus so that we will know he is here to save us specifically from our sin and rebellion and reconcile us back to God, back to himself. And he is going to do that in a way that will be difficult to see because it looks an awful lot like his birth. He came to the lowliest place for his birth and he will go to the lowliest place for his death. He didn't come like Caesar, and he won't save like Caesar. He won't save you like a prideful Caesar waging war from his throne. No, the humble Christ will wage his war on a cross where he will take on your sin and mine, die the death it deserves, and defeat it by rising again so that we may have peace with God and get him as our treasure forever. Glory to God in the highest. He has the highest glory. And that's why this is good news of great joy. Everything that you have ever sought joy in all has a temporary glory that fades. So the joy it provides fades. And your heart thirsts and longs to be satisfied with an unending, unfading glory that only exists in one place and one person in God. And that's who we get in Jesus. Full glory forever equals your heart having full joy forever. That's Psalm 1611. In your presence, your glorious presence, is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Good news of great joy. It is the good news of glory to God in the highest and peace. Peace on earth among those with whom He is pleased. Do, do you want to receive this peace? We're told not everybody does receive it. It's received among those with whom God is pleased. Who's that? That does not make me feel very hopeful. I do not feel that God is very pleased or would be very pleased with me. And that's, that's who peace among those with whom He is pleased. Who is that? I think this is the, the final thing that Luke shows us so that we might see how a new and glorious morn of peace is breaking into our world. Fourth and final, only the shepherd-like receive peace. Only the shepherd-like receive peace. Have you ever 
Have you ever thought, why shepherds? Like out of everybody that the announcement could go to, shepherds feels a little random. We can have theories here, you know, so perhaps, perhaps it's shepherds because God is demonstrating his faithfulness. I mean, we said over a thousand years ago in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to David that a Messiah would come through his line. Does anyone remember what David's original job was? He was a shepherd. Does anyone remember where? Bethlehem. Perhaps, perhaps God announces the birth of Christ to Bethlehem shepherds as a demonstration that he's being faithful to fulfill the promise that he made to a Bethlehem shepherd so long ago. Maybe. Or, perhaps God is demonstrating that the birth of what, maybe he's demonstrating what the birth of Jesus will do in this world. Shine a light in the, in the darkness. The shepherds are out of town. They're away from all light. They're out in the dark of night. And all of a sudden when these angels show up, the glory of the Lord shines around them. Perhaps, perhaps God announces the birth to shepherds to show the world that the light of Christ has come and is piercing the night. Perhaps. I mean, there are, there are many reasons God may have chosen to make his announcement to shepherds. But I think... I think that there is one that stands out as the most obvious. Shepherds were at the bottom rung of society's ladder. And if Christ was being given to them, he truly was being given to all people. Is that not what the angel emphasizes? Look at it again. He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. How am I going to know that? How am I going to know that this is for truly all the people? For. Causal clause. Good news for all the people. For unto you. Shepherds, you can know it's for all people because it's coming to you. And if it's coming to those at the bottom, that means it's for everybody. Okay, good news for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This Savior and the peace He brings is for all, including you. Including you, shepherds. Like His peace will be among all with whom He is pleased. Shepherds, it's possible for God to be pleased with you. Shades, it's possible for God to be pleased with you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you think you fall on the world's scale of importance. This is a Savior for all, even for shepherds, if that's what you want to count yourself as. It's for all. God's peace is for all with whom He is pleased. And shepherds, He can be pleased with you. How? The angel tells them how. He says, go. Go to Christ. Flee to Christ. Fly to Christ. Go! He doesn't look a thing like what you're going to expect out of a Savior and a King. His throne is a manger, so humble yourself. I know you're already on the bottom rung, but this isn't about trying to up yourself by associating yourself with some great Caesar-like King. No, humble yourself even further. Go to this baby King and receive Him as your peace. And this is what we read in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying 
in a manger. They go. They're not, they're not too proud to seek a, this lowly king and to kneel at a manger instead of a, a throne. And in this world that, that confesses Caesar as Lord, these shepherds are confronted with Christ the Lord. And they see. They see. I know that because of verse 20 that says they go away glorifying God and praising Him for all that they had heard and seen. They see Him. They recognize Him. This world that's around them says Caesar and they see Christ. And they receive Him as their peace. And God is well pleased. Do you want to know whom, with whom God is well pleased? All those who are shepherd-like, who humbly receive Christ as King. God is pleased with them. Not because of their receiving. It's not like because the shepherds came and humbly received, they earned God's pleasure and favor. He's not pleased with them because of their receiving. He's pleased with them because of the one that they've received. I know that for a fact because Luke is going to echo this language again one chapter later. In Luke chapter 3 and in verse 22, after Jesus Christ is baptized, God the Father speaks from heaven and He says, this is my Son. With you I am well pleased. God is pleased with Jesus. And so when you humbly receive Jesus, you're united with Him so that the pleasure of God that rests on Him now also rests on you. He has taken care of your sin and you have peace with God because of Him, so God's pleasure rests on you. You have great joy because you've got God now. You've got His peace, His pleasure. You've got Him forever as your joy. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Peace among the shepherd-like who receive Jesus as King. Is that you? Is that, is that you in... In our world, that confesses all kinds of, of Caesars, have you been confronted with this Christ? Like even this morning, through this text, you're encountering Him, being confronted by Him. In Christ, do you see a new and glorious morn of peace breaking into our world? Do you see? I'm Sure. All the Caesars of our world and our time still claim to bring peace, but do you see past the surface to the only true sovereign who can give peace, the only true Savior who brings peace? Only the shepherd-like who humble themselves receive this peace. Only those willing to forsake the thrones of every Caesar ever to come and humbly kneel at the manger, confess a baby as Christ the King. Only those receive this peace. This peace, this peace that we receive, no, it is not yet here in full. Of course, we await His second advent when His shalom, His peace, will be full and final, but already... This peace is breaking in like a sunrise. Like the dawn that's, that's peeking over the horizon already through His first advent, it is breaking in. Yes, we await His second advent when Revelation chapter 1 tells us that we're going to see His face and it's going to be like the sun shining in full strength. 
Revelation 22 tells us that when we see Christ, we will no longer have need of the sun itself because he will be our light. The day will have fully dawned. But not yet. But already. Y'all recognize this language. We talk about this all the time. Already, not yet. Already. That peace is breaking into the lives of those who have faith in Christ. Is that you? This is, this is the invitation of Luke. It's the invitation of the angels. The invitation of God himself. Extended to Theophilus. Extended to you and to me. This, this is the Advent invitation peace for us to look to christ the king and sing in faith yonder breaks a new and glorious morning amen